As many of you are aware, my mother went to be with the Lord in November, and one of the kind of odd things that happens when a loved one dies is that very strange memories can come back to you. Um, and I'm going to relate one to you as we uh, take on a very difficult text. Hopefully, it'll just be a, a little smidgen of humor in order to take on a very sobering text. Um, <clears throat> I'm one of four children. I'm the oldest of four. I have two brothers and then a sister. She was the last. They named her Joy. They were pretty happy to have a girl. Um, but my, uh, my third brother, uh, the, the third one in the family, Rich, who is the senior pastor at Bethany Baptist Church in Peoria, um, <clears throat> he was a stinker. Uh, those of you that remember the peep story, he was the one that said peep, okay? Uh, some of you remember that story that I've told. But uh, this memory kind of came back to us as we were thinking about mom is that both mom and dad were very good disciplinarians. By that I mean that they meted out discipline in a very godly way. They were, they were really good at that. Um, but my brother Rich tested them sorely, okay? And so, quite frequently, he was the recipient of discipline. And one of the ways that my parents did that was that they would take the person being disciplined to an isolated place out of the spot where the rest of the family was in order to uh, um, meet out the discipline and also to have conversations, gospel conversations. And um, my brother Jim and I, because Rich was the recipient of this with a great degree of frequency, one of the things that my brother, Rich, or my brother Jim and I would do is Rich was heading off to that room of isolation. So we went, Rich, Rich, shake my hand, shake my hand. For whatever reason, we thought it was really clever and good to shake uh, Rich's hand before he would be headed off to this discipline, you know. And he would dutifully shake our hands as he walked away. <laughs> um, so today, we're going to be talking about losing our arrogance. It's a series within our series in 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians is about your part in building a healthy church in a pagan world, and we're in four messages on losing our arrogance. Last week, we looked at chapter 4, losing our arrogance in an age of arrogance. Today, we're going to be looking at losing our arrogance about our tolerance of sin, that we tolerate sin. It's a sobering text. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, please open your Bibles there. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. We do not acknowledge nearly as much as we ought the sinfulness of sin. If we understood the sinfulness of sin, we would live differently. Uh, people would understand the gospel, the glorious gospel better. <laughs> but we don't. And so, passages like this, I believe, at least in part, are placed in Holy Scripture, authoritative Word of God, 
so that we might be sobered by the sinfulness of sin. How do we do the Christian life together? Do we do it with a toleration for sin? Or do we seek holiness before the Lord? Let's stand together for the reading of God's Word this morning, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 through 13. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. For when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth." I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he's guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Please have a seat. A sobering passage, is it not? A sobering passage. Let's think about this in three parts, verses 1 through 5. Arrogance leads to sin. Having an arrogant mindset leads to the proliferation of sin. And there are two kinds of sin that Paul's addressing here in these first five verses. The first one, of course, is that there is an immorality happening uh, that's commonly known. Everybody knows about it. Uh, a person actually has taken up with his stepmother, who apparently is not part of the fellowship. This is a clear violation even of pagan standards of morality, but Leviticus chapter 18 verse 8 and Deuteronomy 22:30 specifically address this and prohibit it. The sin, so that's the first sin, the immorality of this fellow in the church. The second sin is the sinful response to that immorality. It says in verse 2, and you are arrogant. 
That is, the church is proud of their openness and acceptance of this immoral person in their immorality. Now, this isn't saying that they're proud of this person's immorality. My guess is that literally everyone in the church would likely acknowledge that what the guy was doing is wrong. But their sin is that they are proud of the fact that they are open and accepting of a person in their midst who is behaving this way. So, verses 2 through 5 tell, Paul gives the instructions of what they are to do. First, the church needs to make the right response emotionally toward immorality, open immorality in their midst. That response is mourning. They should mourn over this existence of such sin in their midst. They should mourn over their lack of discernment. They should mourn over this person's rebellion and the fact that they will be judged by God for it. They should mourn over the fact that people in the fellowship are so worldly that they do such things. They should mourn over the fact that when people in the fellowship do such things, it causes no reaction other than acceptance of the person in their sinful rebellion against the Lord. So first, they should make the right response emotionally toward this immorality. And then very directly, Paul says in verse 2, let him who has done this be removed from among you. Remove the person from the fellowship of the church. You might ask, why? Why should they do that? Well, I think there's three reasons. One is that the goal is to be corrective to the person. That is to help them see the gravity of their own sin and then to confess it, repent from it, and move away from that direction. Secondly, it's a testimony to the world the world at large, that the church takes such things seriously. And thirdly, whenever the church engages in such discipline of its members, it is an awakening for the church, a sobering of the church. It causes a self-examination on the part of each person in the church to say, as the psalmist said, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Why this particular sin? Why sins that become known to the whole body? Why, why shouldn't the church discipline coveting, for example? Well, if such sins were as well confirmed, they probably would be. Uh, we'll see in a moment the kinds of sins that Paul expects to bring discipline, but the idea here is that when there is an open sin that is a, a, a largely aware and there is no repentance taking place, that the church needs to act. There are many questions that arise when we read a text like this particularly in our own modern era, 
Here are some questions that I've heard in the past about such a passage. What right does the church have to discipline? Why should the church get mixed up in people's personal lives? That's their personal life after all. What, what right does the church have to get involved in that? Aren't family members and professional counselors better guides for what that person should do? Those are good questions, aren't they? Here in this text, the Lord of the church not only gives the church the authority to discipline its members, the Lord requires that the church do so. It is the church's responsibility to care for her members in such a way as to, when they are in open rebellion against the Lord, to do whatever they can to bring them back. As for family members, they are important and can be helpful in awakening a person to their sinfulness. But it's been my experience that family members have shown remarkable flexibility on moral issues when it is their family member involved. In other words, in the abstract, Yes, I'm against open rebellion in the church, but when it's my father or mother or brother or sister or son or daughter or grandchild, all of a sudden there's less of an interest. What about professional counselors? Again, I think there is a place for professional counseling. I think it can be very helpful, especially when there's a counselor who can hold a person's feet to the fire, as it were, to help them be awakened to their sin and their need for repentance. But let's recognize that counselors are paid by the client. <laughs> and often, whether conscious or not, that can impact things. Counselors also often follow a counseling philosophy that seeks to find ways to affirm their client rather than to speak truth in any disciplinary kind of way. And so while professional counselors are indeed very helpful, we must recognize that the Lord of the church has not given to family members or counselors this responsibility of such care and it is care here. Another question that gets asked, aren't all of us sinners? How can anyone speak to another person's sins? <laughs> and this indeed is a sobering matter. It reveals at least one reason why there's such a high standard for elders in the church. It should never be taken lightly. And yet again, here we're talking about the idea of going in a course of sin and not repenting and not even wanting the help for it. And that's a big distinction. Now in verse 3, Paul identifies with the Corinthian church so much in this 
that he regards himself as spiritually present, even though, of course, he's not physically present. He's likely writing from Ephesus here, and he's writing to the church at Corinth, and he says, though absent in body, I'm present in spirit. And as such, he says, I have already pronounced judgment on this matter and on the person who is so sinning. One gets the idea from verses 4 and 5 that at the next meeting of the church, where Paul will be present in spirit and the power of the Lord Jesus will be present, the man is to be delivered over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Whoa, deliver over to Satan, that sounds harsh. What does that mean? I'll offer three suggestions, and as a good pastor, it's the third one that I like. Okay. But, but all three of them have, I think, something to say into this passage. Okay? There's, I think there's truth in all three of these ideas. First, delivery over to Satan means to put the person back out into the world without the protection of the church. I think that we cavalierly think that we just kind of go to church. It's kind of our option. Yeah, let's go to church today. We are not aware that the gathering together of God's people is a protection and a privilege for each one of us and our families. And to be put out of that protection is a spiritual hazard and danger of which we hardly ever consider. Second, deliver over to Satan. Put into Satan's hands for physical judgment perhaps even physical death that leads to redemption spiritually. That is, they end up going to heaven, but as it said in chapter 3, only as escaping through fire. There's certainly some truth in this. In chapter 11, we're going to see that there are people who are partaking of the Lord's table in an unworthy way, and some of them are sick, and Paul says that some of you have even died as a result. So, there's the possibility of that aspect involved in this judgment as well. Thirdly, and as I, as I have tried to explain over the last several weeks, the, the term flesh has to do with the whole person as oriented away from, the God, from God. That's what walking in the flesh is. Their whole orientation is a life away from God. And to walk in the Spirit is the whole person as oriented toward God. And so, this third idea, which I uh, am attracted to, deliver the person over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that their whole life as oriented away from God would be destroyed so that their whole life would be oriented toward God. Whichever one you take... The main idea of this deliver such a person over to Satan is that the person figures out that life out there in Satan's realm is like walking a tightrope without a net and the wind is blowing 150 miles an hour. It is so hazardous and so unhappy 
that repentance becomes the result. This is hardly heard of today. Even where church discipline is practiced biblically, all too frequently the person under discipline hardens, justifies, and gathers supporters rather than considers the awful danger that they are in. One of the remarkable things is that according to 2 Corinthians chapter 2, this fellow ended up figuring it out and he repented of his sin. And what ha- what, the reason why Paul addresses it in 2 Corinthians 2 is that the Corinthian church had been good at practicing the discipline, but then once the person repented, they had been very lacking in welcoming him back. <laughs> and so he writes them to say, hey, the guy has repented, welcome him back. It's accomplished its purpose. Discipline works best when the whole church accepts it as important. It can't just be one person or some small group of people who press for it. And so there needs to be a maturing process in the whole church body to receive such a thing. Uh, the goal of discipline is always remedial. It's always corrective. It's always trying to bring the person back. The mourning over sin and the power of the Lord Jesus are essential, but discipline requires a firm action that anticipates that remediation, that correction. And discipline works best when that discipline is accepted by other church fellowships. On the rare occasions where I have sadly over my 35 plus years as a pastor been involved in church discipline cases, I have had people boast to me, I'm going to leave this church, I'll, I'll just go down the road. Gordon Fee in his commentary on this text says, the great problem with such discipline in most Christian communities in the Western world is that one can simply go down the street to another church. Not only does that say something about the fragmented condition of the church at large, but it also says something about those who would quickly welcome one who is under discipline in another community. Perhaps it should be added that if one were to be so disciplined in our day, too often the person could take it or leave it as far as the church is concerned. And that probably says more about the condition of the church itself than about the person who is being disciplined. Maybe the most significant thing we can learn from such a text is how far we are removed from a view of the church in which the dynamic of the Spirit was so real that exclusion could be a genuinely redemptive action. verses 6 through 8. There's only two options that exist for any church fellowship, including East White Oak. Either we have an infectious sin that grows or a contagious righteousness that grows. Those are your two options. You can't say, well, can't we just say 
that person's, we're just going to leave them alone, not do anything, and we can grow in our righteousness. Paul doesn't leave that option open, especially with the illustration that he gives. Boasting about being magnanimous about sin is a sick condition for the church. Paul's saying we don't realize all that is at stake, and he, he shares an analogy now with the Jewish Passover. You know, at the Passover, they would take and remove all of the leaven from the home in order to celebrate this Passover, which is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And if there was any leaven in the home, that leaven had the potential of messing up everything because it infects the whole. And so, the leaven of one man's open sinful rebellion against the known will of God infects all the dough of the church. Verse 7, Paul instructs the church to be ruthless about sin as an act of love. Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump. Why? You really are unleavened. Positionally, we are in Christ. You really are unleavened. Why? Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. We want our lives to reveal our position in Christ, don't we? Because Christ, the Passover lamb, was sacrificed for us to bring about that position of holiness. The precious sacrifice of Christ keeps the angel of spiritual death away. So what Paul is arguing here is how can we possibly want to be proud of our fellowship's acceptance of open rebellion in our midst. And so, verse 8, now the Passover meal of fellowship continues the analogy of Passover with our community life with Jesus. The lamb has been sacrificed and now the meal is eaten. We are to celebrate the feast of our union with Christ. Celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil in our midst. Rather, we are to celebrate the feast of our union with Christ with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. This does not mean that the only people who participate in the life of the church are sinless people, for if that were true, there shouldn't be anybody in the room here. Amen? But rather... There is a softness and an openness to say, Lord, reveal sin to me, and when you do, I immediately repent. I run away from it. Paul offers the church only two options, keep the leaven in sin in the midst and allow it to infect the entire body or remove the leaven and have a contagious righteousness bring sincerity and truth to the entire body. And if we really lived this way, there would be both a holiness and an attraction unknown in the life of the church. Let's look at the remaining verses, avoiding... Corruption requires an unusual separation. If you have ever heard of the word separation as a Christian, that means you had some association with fundamentalism. (laughs) 
Avoiding corruption requires an unusual separation. We typically, when we think about the word separation, we typically conceive of separation of, as believers separating from the world. Paul here has an entirely different point of view. He actually expects us to build connections with people in the world with the aim of drawing them to faith in Christ. But Paul does have a passion for separation. His separation, though, is a separation from any person who would claim to be a believer who is in direct and open rebellion against God's ways. The the word that is used here, a person who bears the name of brother. We don't know whether or not they're actually a Christian. That's known to to God himself. But when a person claims the name of Christ, that's where we need to be aware of this. Different kind of separation, isn't it? Not a separation from the world, people in the world, but a separation from believers who are in direct and open rebellion against God's ways. Verse 9, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. This letter that we have titled 1 Corinthians is at least Paul's second letter to Corinth. In a prior letter, he had written to them not to associate with a sexually immoral person. But he did not mean unbelievers who were sexually immoral. Rather, he meant the church should not associate with those who claim to be believers who are sexually immoral. The condition of the world, Paul says, is such that immoral unbelievers are impossible to avoid. Sexually immoral, greedy, swindlers, idolaters, they fill the world of unbelievers. You'd need to leave the world to avoid them. No, what Paul means is to avoid association with anyone who bears the name of brother or sister. Verse 11, if he's guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler. By the way, this list here in verse 11 is a good one in helping answer the question, how can a church know what to discipline? The church should discipline matters of sexual purity, money purity, worship purity, communication purity, which includes all forms of verbal abuse, maligning and reviling, and physical purity, no substance abuse, as well as relational purity, no swindling, no taking advantage of the weak or of pretending or stealing. Paul says, don't even eat with such a person. That is, exclude them from your fellowship meals and the Lord's table. The not even implies that they should be excluded from private social connection as well. Keeping in mind that the goal is not to regard the person as an enemy, but to warn them as a brother, 2 Thessalonians 3.15. I have to confess that I believe this is exactly the opposite of our inclinations. We in the church feel like we ought to judge the world. There were probably some things that you saw in your news feed this week that you're just like, oh, look at the world. Right? I mean, it's easy to do that. We judge the world. But that's not our business. At least not yet. We will see next week in chapter 6, verse 2, that there will come a day 
when the church will judge the world, but that day is not yet. Rather, we as the church are called to offer a striking alternative to the world. What have I to do with judging outsiders, Paul says in verse 12. Verse 13, God judges those outside. It's not our business, not yet. But it is our job, the church, to judge those who are inside. So our inclination is easily to judge the world, very easy for us to do and identify, and then to be extremely hesitant about judging our own. Paul calls the church to do the opposite. You all as the church are to judge those inside the church. When he says, purge the evil from among you, he's quoting Deuteronomy 17.7, expel the man from the community, act responsibly, but act. And so that gives the answer to the questions that often get asked about church discipline. What gives the right of the church to discipline? What authority does a church have? And they often say it in this way, to spoil a person's reputation. That's already done there. But uh, it's easy for us to, to think that the church has no right when, in fact, this text reveals it's not just the right, it's the duty of a church. We are to freely associate with those outside the church with the careful warning that bad company can and does corrupt us, but we do so with the goal of, of bringing them to Jesus. And that's why sometimes people ask the question, why is it that the church disciplines somebody and then another person does the exact same thing and they're not disciplined? Well, one of the reasons is that that person is not a Christian. They don't make the claim of being a Christian. They aren't a member of the church. Folks, every unbeliever is welcome to come to participate here, come to our worship services. Every unbeliever. And we aren't going to judge their sin. Not going to happen. Why? Because they don't bear the name of brother or sister. But we're to exercise strict discipline within the church toward professed believers who do not openly live according to the gospel. In our free association with the world, the goal is to put Christ on display by taking on his character rather than the character of the world. Far too many Christians and churches observe strict separation from people of the world and allow people with many of the sins in verses 10 and 11 to remain in good standing in the church. Many adopt the Corinthian attitude. Well, we're all sinners after all, and live with little to no distinction between the Christian and the worldling. When we live like this, the church ends up neither purifying those inside the church nor engaging those outside of it in life-giving relationship. Now, bring this message in for a landing with two things. One are some objections, and then secondly, some personal challenges that I've encountered in my experience as a pastor. First, some objections. What about Matthew 7, 1 to 6? It says, don't judge or you will be judged. Or John chapter 8, the woman caught in adultery, let him who is without sin cast the first stone. Um, those are indeed sobering texts, aren't they, that require 
proper self-examination. But there's a huge difference between the personal criticism that Jesus is talking about in Matthew 7 and John 8 and the addressing of persistent sin among a pers- in a person who is a member of the body of Christ here in 1 Corinthians 5. We need to communicate clearly to all that a person cannot belong to a Christian community and continue openly sinful, rebellious behavior. Such open rebellion demands discipline. As I've shared this passage with you, I want you to know that it's hard. It's hard to bring a message like this. Some days I think uh, when you go through exposition of Scripture, you go, okay, let's go to chapter 6. You know, we just skip this one. Part of the reason why I uh, have that is the personal challenges I've faced over the years as a pastor along this line. Those times when I have pastorally led church discipline, while they have done that work of creating a holiness and a self-examination on the part of the body of Christ… I've never been in a situation where it's been corrective. I've heard of it, but I personally have never experienced it. doesn't mean I don't think that we shouldn't engage in church discipline. I believe we do. If we're going to follow the Bible, then we need to. But in my experience, the the persons dug in, they gathered supporters, people didn't understand. I want to share with you, I'm a broken-hearted pastor over that. I question, because what happens a lot of times is people say, well, I don't, I don't have anything to say, Pastor, about what you're doing here, but the way you did it was all wrong, you know? And uh, I examine and go over and over that in my mind. It happens with some frequency when scandal or sin is confronted, the leadership of the church is questioned about their own arrogance. It's a sobering thing to attempt to shepherd God's dear people. You are dear, dear people. By the way, that's why we try so hard to promote our pathways of discipleship, of the worship service and adult Bible fellowships and small groups. More on that in just a second. Another personal challenge, there have been times when I have pushed for church discipline, but the church was not in agreement with me on the matter. I'm content to leave that with the church and its own growth in maturity. It doesn't, don't, I don't have any thoughts that I would know better than the church together would have on it. Sometimes churches are simply not ready to engage in that, and to be a good shepherd means that you need to patiently teach, which I hope is something that's happening here. Another personal challenge, there are 
cult-like organizations which express discipline improperly. But in every church I know of where discipline came to the point of removing the person from the body, there end up being a significant number of believers in the community who disagreed with the discipline. And I think that that ends up muting the effect of it. I've never experienced a church discipline situation that was endorsed by every other church in the community. I've never experienced that. Which says that we ought to pray for one another, right? I mean, we pray here for other churches. We want to pray that God would make a beautiful, holy church, bride, right? Not just us at East White Oak, you know, not have any arrogance like we're holier than every other church. No, we pray for the body of Christ. Another challenge that I've faced personally, the church becomes aware of a church discipline situation far too late in the process. It's like the, not just the 11th hour, but the 12th hour has passed and gone well down the road. It seems pretty important that a trust gets built among people in the church for the church. And that's best expressed here in our pathways of discipleship. Again, the worship service and adult Bible fellowships and and small groups. I suppose it could happen, but people who regularly participate in all three of our pathways stand a very good chance at fighting against such sinful desires where they find themselves wanting to rebel against the Lord. It's when people distance themselves from those or never participate in those that we find the challenges of a person like the one dressed in 1 Corinthians 5. Why is that? Well, it's because when you want to sin and you want to be in open rebellion, you don't want to be around other believers (laughs) because it reminds you, right? Um, One last personal challenge. People have such a low sense of what being a church member means and such a high sense of individual rights that every church discipline case is fraught with the challenge of potential legal actions. We'll talk more about that next, next week. You know, as I've thought about this message, I was thinking, I need to have some really good conclusion. <laughs> I came up empty. I don't have a good conclusion for this except to say this. God calls the church to purity. He calls every member of the church to examine themselves and humbly walk with the Lord. He calls us not to just let a person go in their open sinful rebellion, but to seek them out and to seek to bring them back, not to abandon them. And while our own culture has created an environment where church discipline is not only not understood but thought of as abusive. When it comes to the culture, 
or this book in deciding what's best for us? Brothers and sisters, let's go with this book. There's life here. Lord Jesus, help us as a church so to love people, to care enough that if it comes to it, we would even come to this place of discipline. Help us not to walk away or to ignore or heaven forbid, like the Corinthian church, be boastful about our toleration Lord, I pray that those who are maybe right now in an act of open rebellion would say, Lord, forgive me, and they'd run away from it. Even now, they'd make the decision, I'm cutting the ties with this horrible sin of whatever kind it is, Lord. Do your work of purifying us, making us fit vessels for you. And Lord, If there's someone here who doesn't know Jesus, help them to see that there is a way that we can be freed from our sin. It is by the precious blood of Christ. He gave himself for us so that we may be set free from sin. And I'd ask that anyone who's never done that would say, Lord, forgive me of my sins by what you did at the cross. Give me your eternal life. In Jesus' name.